0: Hello, world. When I tell you I was awake at 2 a.m. on a Monday night, dubiously researching the murder capital of the 1920s, no, it was in service of you and not my waning sanity or skincare routine. We are back with another episode of Her Story. I'm Mary Jane, and because I don't fear getting roasted to death, we have a familiar face with us today. After her infamous murder streak racking up quips on our episode last season featuring arsonist and duelist Julie D'Aubigny, here is the wonderful Abby.
1: Hey y'all, I'm excited to be here.
0: Bet you never had an introduction like that.
1: Um, That was quite the introduction. I'm excited to talk more about murder
0: though. That's kind of the theme of today's episode. <laughs> so Abby came on the show last season and uh, um, her most apparent criticism was that Women were not murdering their lovers enough in in the podcast. Yeah, well, I was
1: with that. She had all those, like, terrible people she was in romantic situations with and even, like, her husband. She just didn't kill him, And she should have. Because she killed plenty of other people. Like, her husbands deserve it. <laughs> they know. had it coming.
0: Wow, what a... G- Did you practice that? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> She's a natural, ladies and gentlemen. Um, while I, unfortunately, can't condone murder... I can talk about it publicly, so here we are today. Abby, am I not a woman of the people? Absolutely you are. Did I, I not promise that. to deliver? Yes, you did. And you all will be proud of me. This is not an internet rabbit hole we're jumping through today. The Chicago Tribune published a book of some of its most famous write-ups of Chicago's 1920 murderesses. <clears throat> written by Corey Rumor and Maureen Mather, He Had It Coming is the true story behind the musical Chicago. Today, we are doing an exposé on the trials of four women who inspired the iconic characters and the female journalist who brought their stories to life and later wrote the musical. We're a true crime podcast today. This is so exciting. So before we get started, let's, let's ruminate, let's imagine 1920s Chicago, a haven of jazz, alcohol, and gangsters painting the city with blood. Newspapers run on sensationalism. And there was nothing more fascinating than a new genre of killers—women. Don't you just love breaking the glass ceiling?
1: Absolutely, especially when it has to do with murder. <laughs> it's a fun one to break.
0: I love that you're so excited about murder. I really
1: love Chicago, honestly. Like, it's just a fun story, and it's interesting that it came from real life. So
0: definitely, I—I'm um, so bad. I had to sit down and like watch the entire film Mm -hmm. as like because i'd never seen the whole film what i know i was so how would you not seen it
1: i'm really curious like what what made you not watch it for so
0: long i think like i didn't watch it when i was a kid because there was like murder and i feel i don't know they had to like rent it in Mm -hmm. most cases before streaming like subscriptions via your parents email (laughs) and so like i don't know i just i'd never had like the reason to like sit down and watch it mm-hmm. all the way through
1: had you at least heard like all of the score
0: yeah at least heard most of the score okay that's a good one. Oh yeah what's
1: your favorite song
0: cell block tango okay besides cell block tango oh she's quizzing me here I'm um really i curious. like um oh what's it called it's um the matron, mama.
1: When you're good to mama. When you're good to mama. Oh, Mama's that's my, my favorite. favorite. That's so good.
0: It's good. If anyone's seen Newsies, there's a really great number in there that's just like it. Mm-hmm. Little less PG thirteen, but <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we're off topic. Back we need to, what to talk we're about, about murderers. But let's start with Marine Watkins. So, born July twenty seventh, eighteen ninety six. Marine Watkins was hired by the Chicago Tribune in February of nineteen twenty four to cover the city's most scandalous crimes. So the highlights of her pretty much her big run as a journalist were the trials of four women who would go on to inspire Roxy Hart, Velma Kelly, Go to Hell Kitty, and Hunyuk, some of her most like infamous characters in the show.
1: So she inspired all of those characters?
0: The women she covered inspired Uh, all those characters. So four trials, each one inspired a different woman. That makes more sense. Marine would visit the women in the Cook County Jail and conduct interviews running stories on the trial's progress. So, let's start with the musical's leading lady. Roxy Hart was inspired by Balua Ann. Born November 18, 1899, her mother filed for... Oh, actually, I need to preface these. The st- actual stories, in many cases, are not as fun as the musical. You're going to see a lot of parallels, though, in between the trials and like how much inspiration she took for each character. But, like, it's not—they're no, they're not dance numbers in this, unfortunately. It's real life, so it's kind of sad.
1: Okay, but instead of, like, a fake murder, it's a real murder. So I feel like it was
0: definitely exciting enough at the time. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Doesn't need a dance number to be an interesting case. I just want to warn you guys. Like, some of these, you're going to be like, oh, my God. And then others, you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? It's a roller coaster of emotions, people. You can tell I'm definitely not unhinged from doing all this in two days. So, leading lady, Roxy Hart. Don't look at me like that. Okay, but you just said you're not unhinged. I disagree. Leading lady, Roxy Hart, was inspired by Balua Ann. Mm -hmm. Born November 18th, excuse me, 1899, her mother filed for divorce from her Kentucky farming husband, who kicked her and young Balua out of the house. Balua was first married February 11th, 1915 at only 15 years old, lying on her marriage certificate when she and Perry Stevens eloped to Rockport, Indiana. That seems a little sus. Yeah. How old was he at the time? I'm not sure, honestly. Okay. That's quite young. Yeah. And if he
1: was above, yeah. like, a few years older than her, a little problematic.
0: Yeah, you're going to see a lot of age gaps today. Yeah, Lots. That of makes gaps. sense. So they had their first son, Perry Stevens Jr., about a year later. So she's only about 16, maybe 17, but it's still pretty early. Mm -hmm. Um, The marriage ended in divorce very quickly, and Perry um, Jr. was sent to live with his paternal grandparents, recalling later on that his mother was never mentioned in his presence, and he never even met her. That's So sad. Um, Balua had already moved on to Chicago and married Albert Anon on March 29, 1920, after meeting him in Louisville. People are very touchy about how you pronounce that city's name. <laughs> Seven years her senior, Albert was a mechanic working long hours and making very little. The couple lived in an apartment in modern-day Bronzeville. Belua then met Harry Clast, a twice-married with three daughters, at the laundromat where they both worked. And the tune soon began, soon began an affair. She later went on to admit that they were intimate on three occasions. On April 3rd, 1924, Balua shot Harry in her apartment. In such a state of shock that she couldn't get her story straight, leaving her to wait two hours in her apartment before calling her husband. How many times did she shoot him? Several. Okay. I know at least two um, in the film, it's like she like shoots him like 30 times. Yeah, and they're like, wow, you went to town on this home invader. <laughs> but um anyway, so um she waited two hours before calling her husband, all while the song Hoola Lou played on her record player on repeat. She was in a state of panic, probably. Oh, yeah, which makes me think this was like not a premeditated murder. Mm-hmm. Just a woman of passion. <laughs> Just a crime of passion, ladies and gentlemen. At six p.m. She called her husband, saying, I've shot a man, Albert. He tried to make love to me. Blua was still covered in blood by the time he taxied home, already calling Sergeant John O'Grady as Blua protested, telling him not to call the police. Grady reportedly heard her cry, I've just killed my husband, before hanging up. Hmm,
1: she couldn't even get her men straight.
0: Blua stirred confusion when the police arrived, diverging into two different stories. The first, in her shock, attested that the dead man in her bedroom had tried to assault her, and so she had defended herself. Albert tried taking the blame for the murder, but the police weren't buying, especially because Harry was shot in the back, and that was very unusual if he was, like, coming at her. Blua said that Harry was uh, trying—later said that Harry was trying to leave her, so she killed him. It was her lawyer, W.W. O'Brien— who invented the infamous story, they had both gone for the gun. Blua was sent to jail, and despite her husband's anger about being used by his wife, being cheated on and then almost blamed for murder, he agreed to stick by her. Blua lived on Murderous Row, where prisoners fought for headlines via reporters who came to interview them. These stories would get a lot of public support for the accused, whose cells would be filled with flowers, food, and gifts from admirers. Lua was once sent a steak dinner with potatoes and a cucumber salad. Journalists were a ticket for attention, and women would say anything to avoid hanging. At this point, Illinois had never condemned a woman to death, and publicity was everything because that was like the threat at the time. Like, murderous row, like you're gonna hang, and they're like, Pff, like put your money where your mouth is. Come mm-hmm. on, but still, it's pretty scary. It's interesting
1: they had so many fans, honestly. Yeah. Like, a little terrifying, but also at the same time, like, I'm sure that still happens today, where there's, like, murders that go- get famous, mm. serial killers, and then people, like, send them letters and
0: shit. Oh, I, to- I totally agree. It's terrifying. It is. But, like, these—so the press has such a big role, and that's probably, like, looking at the problems of the press at this time. Mm-hmm. Which I think the Chicago Tribune, like, in this book does a good job of, like, not hiding all, like, the BS that they pulled. Mm-hmm. Which I respect, but journalists will just hype these murders up to like sensationalist stories. Like a woman was either like a beautiful femme fatale scarlet who was reformed, or she was like a vicious murderer in their eyes, and they would not be afraid to like condemn her and like sway public opinion either way.
1: Yeah, so then they basically had the say in whether people were going to have sympathy for someone or just be like, no, screw them, they murdered someone. Yeah. But it could have to do with like if they were like an attractive person or not.
0: Oh, hundred percent. Beauty was such a motivator, mm-hmm. and everyone would say like, "Oh, this is a beauty proof jury," and then she'd like bat her eyelashes, and like four bachelors would like turn their head. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's real. That happened. But it's it's just crazy. Beulah once confided in journalist Maureen Watkins that the papers were getting her story all wrong. Eula said she was the one who had tried to leave Harry, not him leaving her, and that he had nothing that would make her leave her darling husband. She bore down on that story that Harry would have killed her had she not shot first. If you're confused, me too. So at this point, we have three, technically like three paths the story could have gone. Number one, Harry was trying to leave her and so she shot him. Number two, Harry was trying, wouldn't let her leave him so she shot him in self-defense, or... He was trying
1: to attack her. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, it's a lot going but on. But that wouldn't make sense if he had his back turned.
0: Right. Like. like, it's weird. It's a lot going on. So even better, though, one month into her stay in jail, Beulah announced that she was pregnant. This was actually perfect timing because it would move up her trial and ensure that any execution would be staved off until the birth of the baby. If Beulah was really pregnant... Maureen pulled the woman on death row for a 1924 article, and every single one of them said they were certain Beulah would go free. These were all-white male juries, and they were never blind to a beautiful pregnant woman on trial, especially for Beulah, whom Marine deemed the prettiest woman ever to commit murder in Chicago. <laughs> Selecting a jury for this May trial was very difficult, as most men assumed that she was guilty. The court accepted um, both of her supposed confessions, one saying that he tried to assault her and that she had shot him for trying to leave her, which was pretty bad for her her defense. Mm -hmm. Beulah's lawyer maintained that they had both gone for the gun. Beulah also insisted that Harry was a womanizer who had tried to hurt a modest housewife, and her story paid off. Her assurance that Harry had served time for assaulting a woman before and even bragging about it and didn't care about her pregnancy was a huge sway for the judges, for the judge and the jury. The beautiful, sorrow-filled face won Beulah her freedom. All the jurors voted her not guilty and even posed with her and her husband after declaring her innocence, like for a photo outside the courtroom. I mean, she was infamous at that point. She was. She just gotten away with murder. So no surprise, Beulah and Albert eventually divorced. She married and divorced again in 1927 to former boxer Edward Hartlib, who might have also still been married at the time. It's kind of confusing. Um, Beulah heard about this play coming up named Chicago that was based – so Pashara was the predecessor to the musical we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and even was like, yeah, I'm anxious to go see it. So she even knew about the show that had been written about her. But before turning 30, Beulah contracted tuberculosis and was hospitalized under the fake name Dorothy Stevens. After reconciling with her estranged father, Beulah passed away on March 10th, 1928. All three of her ex-husbands joined her at the funeral.
1: Maybe karma got her, honestly. I
0: think so. Yeah, that's sad, but... Mm. Yeah, I mean, not saying that, like, she deserved to die no, or, like, anything, not. but, like, but part of me is like, well, you, d- you did the hard stuff. You got away with murder. You got to do something now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's Maybe not much it's just much more me. you
1: can... Can't go up any farther in your life. And get away with murder.
0: And <laughs> then you peeks. You peeks. She's like tapping out. I've done all I can. Also, I would just—I would hate to get tuberculosis mm-hmm. personally. Is there a vaccine against that? I think I'm vaccinated. I, so. I don't know. We shouldn't. Someone will know out there. Some doctor <laughs> will be. Obviously, because doctors and people of academia are listening to this. Of course. Oh man, I'm so sleep deprived. Okay, according to the Tribune. If Beulah was the prettiest on death row, Belva Gartner was the most stylish. Belva Gartner would go on to inspire Velma Kelly. That makes sense. The infamous murder and cabaret singer. Though no birth certificate exists for her, Belva was born September 14, 1884 in Litchfield, Illinois, to Charlie and Mary Jane Booslinger. That's to you. What a pretty name. <laughs> i know they're catching me my time traveling it's just Mm -hmm. not paying off i guess catch up with you eventually i know you're actually
1: telling this story because it's the story of your daughter
0: it is my Mm -hmm. darling belva and the murder she conducted
1: you condoned that right
0: oh i helped her plan it it was first
1: the admission to helping plan a murder
0: what like a hundred years later there you go, ladies. Suppose they can't catch you for it now. Yeah, right. There's still gotta be some kind of statuation on. Is there a statute
1: of limitations on murder? I really don't think there is.
0: Um well who's to say, right? Okay. That's fine. It's Maybe fine. there's a statute
1: of limitations on being an accomplice to murder.
0: That's fair. We're very te- <laughs> legally technical here. Okay, so back to murder? Back to murder. All right. Okay, so Belva and her sister lived in an orphanage for a few months in 1900, but were later collected by their mother. Their father, though, had died in 1889. I don't know what was going on in that situation. Most of their life accounts for all these women are just pieced together by whatever legal documents we happen to have at the time that were still saved. So what's cool is like all of these photographs, newspaper clippings, and like documents were kept in like these old storage boxes deep beneath the Tribune, hmm. and so the two authors of this book, these two women who worked there, were going through all this stuff, mm-hmm. and they found stuff on Maureen and all the four women, and real- and kind of started piecing together that like okay these are like this is the story that was lost for a century like this is really what inspired Chicago. That's really cool. Yeah. It's like these women, are the um, authors are like, yeah, we think about these women every day. Like, it is haunting. Mm -hmm. I mean, they kind
1: of had tragic lives. They really did. Like, Like, if it led to them murdering someone, something had to go wrong.
0: Oh, 100%. It's all circumstance. Mm -hmm. And it often starts with early and bad marriages. (laughs) Let that be a lesson to you. So, again, teenager, at 17, Belva briefly married Harry Pippo in 1901, then wed Ernest Oberick in Portland in 1905. Though they divorced 16 years later, she still had no idea the date of the wedding, saying Ernest hid the certificate and never let her see it, which is weird in itself. Mm-hmm. Red flag. Yep. Belva said her husband left her not long after they moved to Chicago in 1909, but their divorce wasn't finalized till 1916.
1: Maybe he hid it and like was trying to keep them from getting divorced or something. Like it was all a power play.
0: Definitely could have been like it's weird. We really just like it's the murderess's accounts and mm-hmm. then legal documents that we have all this stuff for. I trust the murderess. Trust <laughs> <has> the <murderous laughs> account, of course. Yeah, <laughs> she's definitely not in her own self interest here. Mm-mm. She would never lie about murder. Never. Belva um and her said husband divorced not long after they moved to Chicago in um at least they separated not after they long after they moved to Chicago in nineteen oh nine. There was no money from the divorce. Ernest apparently gambled it all away. About a month after divorcing, she married William Gartner. And by the time they were ready for divorce, Belva and Ernest would become local celebrities for changing rules of how legal it was to be remarrying in a year. Um, So in Chicago, there was a law that said you could not remarry within one year of divorce or two for infidelity.
1: Interesting law.
0: Yeah. Um, so Bella was test was trying to get divorced and remarry and also trying to get alimony from her last husband. So getting money in the divorce. Okay. And then what happened? Um by the way, just just funny. Um, Bella and Ernest Gardner married in June of nineteen seventeen and petitioned for divorce that August. So, um, they made up for about two years at this time and were finally married legally in August of 1918, but did divorce, no surprise, um, because of their two decades difference in age, which really not surprising there. Yeah, this divorce was insane. Between the two of them, they hired 16 private investigators to spy on the other like, literally, like, Belva would have, like, a gaggle of private investigators following her to the grocery store. Like, this was not a good divorce. But anyway, after the 1920 divorce, Belva did try to start her own taxi business. So she wanted to work for herself and be an entrepreneur. Then came March 12, 1924. 40-year-old Belva had been going out with Walter Law for three months despite his wife and child at home. At 1 a.m., police officers found Walter dead in Belva's car. Apparently, they observed a woman entering a car with a man. They heard shots, found a body, and tracked down Belva via the license plate. Pacing in her silk robe, bloody clothes still on the floor, Belva denied knowing anything about the murder and still ended up in Cook County Jail. Held without bond, the next day, Belva said, of course, it's too bad for Walter's wife, but husbands always cause women trouble. <laughs> According to Law's friend, Walter had feared Belva, and she allegedly tried to stab him if he ever left her. seems healthy. Apparently, he also took out like life insurance because, um, like invested a lot more in it because Belva had reportedly like said she was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. But to Belva, no woman could ever love a man just enough to kill him. And just like Velma Kelly, she also wanted to be a cabaret performer. Mm-hmm. Um, Belva said that she had been drunk and couldn't remember a thing, only that one minute Walter was talking about being uh, his fear of being held up by men, cold like up men, and the next he was covered in blood. She was so afraid that she fled, and this was a unique defense to take. Belva wished for a jury of liberal men, lovers of jazz and going out, to save her from the noose. Her ex-husband, Gartner, was making oxygen regulars for the U.S. Army at this time, and he hired three lawyers to defend her, hoping to get back with her after the trial. Hmm. So Maureen covered Belva's trial. Her, the defendant's outfits are described in vivid detail. Um, she was absolutely a fashion icon um, as she waited to see if she'd be sentenced to death. So let me read you an actual quote from the Tribune of the trial. June 5th, 1924. Her sultry eyes never lost their dreaminess, as policemen described the dead body slumped over the wheel of the Nash sedan, the matted hair around the wound, the blood that dripped in pools, and her revolver and fifth of gin lying on the floor. Her sensuous mouth kept its soft curve as they told of finding her in her apartment. Like, what? That is... These trials are such a sham of, like, just show business. Mm-hmm. No, that's, it actually really makes sense that
1: they would, that this, that those couple, those two trials would be some of the basis for Chicago. Oh, yeah. Because it's like taking these women that are, like, so beautiful and so magnificent and then describing them in that way.
0: It's a choice. Oh, yeah. You definitely wouldn't see a modern trial like that. No, you would not. So, Belva said she had only brought her gun because of Walter's fear of being mugged. And after seven hours of deliberation, Belva was not guilty. From her home, Walter's widow was crying out, furious, there is no justice in Illinois. Walter paid, why shouldn't she? Belva collected her wardrobe from Murderous Row and went on to stay with her sister. And the convicts were sorry to see her go. Accordingly, she was the best dancer and card player. Belva Gartner remarried Gartner in May of 1925 and traveled widely, breaking up and making up over and over. <laughs> Gartner nearly divorced her again after she apparently tried to kill him, but Belva brushed it off. He stayed with her through years of antics, and when he died, he left most of his estate to her and ensured his veteran employees would keep their job by putting business operations through the University of Chicago. Belva moved to Los Angeles in the 50s to live with her sister, and died May 14th, 1965, of heart disease at age 80. Did she
1: ever get to be a cabaret singer like she wanted to be? I don't think so. That's so sad. Her dreams died. I know. At least she got, like, a slightly longer life than the last person. That's true. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, I gotta
0: head out. Yes. Thank you for having me. Any last words about Um, Chicago and murder?
1: In the upcoming murders, I don't know who's next, Mm -hmm. but... Just remember, the men probably deserved it. That's all I got to say. All right. (laughs) Thank
0: you. (laughs) They had it coming. Next comes go-to hell kitty. Really, Catherine Kitty Mombalk. The tribune's infamous line for this accused murder was that she packed a gat where most girls harbor their love letters. A Hungarian immigrant born July 26, 1904, she and her mother came to the U.S. in 1911. With her father dead and brothers to care for, her mother saw no need to give her daughter a formal education. She married Max Balk, a Russian immigrant 20 years older than her, on February 7th, 1921. But Max was verbally abusive and eventually Catherine left. She sent $15 a month to her mother to care for their daughter, Catherine Jr. Catherine loved her daughter and would do anything for her. Though she eventually took up with ex-con Otto Malm. They tried to marry, but Catherine was still technically married to Max, so it wasn't legal. And neither, according to the Tribune's book, was their activities. Otto and Catherine tried to break into Delson Manufacturing, perhaps to rob it, on November 4, 1923. The pair were stopped by two security guards, and Otto opened fire. One bullet grazed Kitty's head, and another killed Edward Lehman, a 19-year-old guard. Catherine escaped to Indianapolis, hiding from police and would have gone on to New York if not for her daughter, who was being heavily surveilled day and night, a trap set for Kitty. Catherine had a chance to flee Chicago, but decided to turn herself in, hoping to cooperate in order to see her daughter. Problem was, Otto, the driver, and some apparent accomplices had already been apprehended. Otto said Catherine was the one who had fired and killed the guard. Catherine denied this, saying, "'Men, they're brave as the devil, but can't hold out the way a woman can.'" Now me, if they beat me the hell out of me, I wouldn't have squealed. The press deemed her a tiger woman, but Catherine was terrified that she would be executed. At least life in prison would let her see her mother and daughter. Pretty and well-dressed, Catherine confessed to helping Otto in the robberies, but that she couldn't have shot Lehman because she didn't own a gun. Catherine was terrified at what would become of her daughter without her, and once the matron of the prison found her trying to commit suicide. Still, Catherine was a pretty girl and a mother, and she said, I have about as much of a chance of getting the rope as mom has of getting angel wings when he croaks. She read the Bible as the men of the jury were selected, and on day one of court, Catherine's daughter was there in the trial and tried to sit with her mother. The men trying to prove her guilty was Harry Pritzker of the state attorney's office, who would go on and try to prove Belva Gartner guilty that same year. The great-uncle of Governor J.B. Pritzker tried to get Catherine the death penalty. The press called her a wolf, a tiger, and described her as the hardest killer ever to enter that courtroom. A surprise testimony of a fellow tenant in Indiana described Catherine as a vicious killer who carried two guns everywhere except in eating, sleeping, and sex. Catherine fainted during the testimony. Twice. When a surviving night watchman, though, came to the stand, he said he never saw a woman the night of the break-in. On the stand, Catherine shocked the jury by admitting she was there the night of the murder, but that no one had told her where they were going. She thought it was a joyride and claimed Otto tried to shoot her to prevent Catherine from telling the world that he shot the night guard. She attested that she'd never carried or shot a gun in her life. Catherine was found guilty on February 26, 1924, after only an hour and 26 minutes of deliberation. Though they admitted that Otto fired the gun, she was guilty by association. Catherine raged and fainted in the courtroom. She fainted again in her cell. Catherine had been so surprised she wasn't going to hang that she would lost it. Max divorced her, and then Otto killed a fellow prisoner. While she was in the clink herself, Catherine dedicated herself to an education and reform. She worked as a clerk and studied hard for shorthand and typing. And Pritzker, surprisingly, became her greatest advocate as she tr- constantly tried for appeal— and he said that a shortened sentence and pardon would complete her rehabilitation, and that sensationalism from the press had been the thing to move the jury. Her pardon was denied on ridiculous grounds. Misdemeanors of talking, whispering, and swearing at guards are just some of it. Catherine fell ill within the week and died of pneumonia on December 27, 1932, after receiving word that she would not be getting an appeal. Her mother and 12-year-old daughter were at her side when she died in the prison hospital. And finally, we get to Isabella Nitti, an Italian immigrant whose body dialect was nearly impossible for most Italian translators to understand. Isabella Maria Trevegalio was born March 14, 1879, in southern Italy, moving with her sons to meet her husband in New York in 1916. Her husband, Francesco, had a vicious temper and often got into fights. July 15th, 1922, in a fight with his son, Michael, Francesco was severely beaten by his son after refusing to give the punk $500. That, that's a lot of money in these days. It's a lot of money now. I can't even buy ramen. What would I do with $500? The 29th was the last time Sabella's husband was seen alive. Several witnesses saw him throughout the day. But when Sabella awoke the next day after her husband had not returned home from the fields, she went to police and helped them search, weeping when she was told that he hadn't been found. Michael, the son who beat his father, suspiciously stayed away from the farm for a week. Cook County Department Sheriff Paul Dasso became interested and came down to the farm. Despite speaking Italian, he required the help of a farmhand, Crudel, to translate to Sabella. After weeks with no leads, Dasso suddenly announced Sabella and Crudell were lovers and arrested them on September 14, 1922. These charges were inflamed by her sons, Michael and James, who implied Sabella and Crudell had something to do with their father's disappearance. James, who was living in Wisconsin, quickly cashed in on his father's property after the estate passed to him and not his mother because of her being held in in prison for suspected murder and he started selling off the estate three days later. Their oldest daughter, Teresa, said that she had seen her father's body thrown in the river, and with Michael over his shoulder, little Charlie said Peter Crudell killed his father with a sledgehammer and carted his body off, and that Charlie had been forced to help. His first statement said his mother had no idea about the murder. Later, he said Sabella held down Francesco as Crudell killed him. Eventually, Sabella had the estate returned to her from James, and she and Crudel were released. Fearing adultery charges, the two married on March 7, 1923. That May, a decomposed body was found washed up on the property, and the two were arrested for murder. The body was only identifiable as Francesco from a single gold ring and the pair of shoes. Kind of vague, but okay. And this, <laughs> This actual identification was done by a single neighbor potentially his like the aunt of the family, and the sons, who are so suspicious. So suspicious. Remember, there is no DNA-like pairing at this time. And the trial started on July 2nd, 1923. James said his mother killed his father, and the press called Sabella an animal, a peasant. Dirty and insulting names. The trial was an absolute mess. Many of the witnesses and onlookers spoke little English, and the judge thought Sabella and Crudel's lawyer was incompetent, but never removed him. Sabella didn't understand what the court was asking of her on the stand. She didn't speak English. After two hours of deliberation, Sabella and Crudell were guilty, both sentenced to hang. Sabella had took it quietly, not even knowing what the verdict meant. She became the first woman in Illinois sentenced to death. The outrage was immediate and overwhelming. One of the jurors' wives threatened to leave her husband if Sabella was hanged. Her cellmates wrote in her defense decrying how the Tribune vilified and dehumanized her. Churches were derailing capital punishment, and still the Tribune supported the verdict, saying Sabella was ugly and repulsive. On July 21, 1923, a coalition of Italian-American organizations took up the crusade. Sabella tried suicide twice— even as people rallied to her defense, saying the U.S. had never hanged a mother and that a new trial was needed. The judge was not moved, and the Tribune sent out a racist editorial about how Italians should go back to their country. On September 25, 1923, Illinois Supreme Court Justice Carter stayed the execution of Sabella and Crudell, and a legal team was raised with funds from Italian-Americans arguing for a reversal of the sentence on December 15, 1923. Sabella had made a deal for immunity when she was first taken in for questioning that would have returned her to her family and kept her at property, but that hadn't been presented to the court because, and I quote, of the gross incompetency and stupidity of her attorney. There was no substantial proof that the body was Francesco Nitti. Charles' testimony was reviewed. A neighbor had borrowed the wagon and it would, that would have dragged the body off. So that would have was an impossible part of the story. And if Charlie had been forced to bury the body, why would he have participated in the search earlier that day for his father that had come up with nothing? The judge should have stopped the trial and got Sabella and Cridell new lawyers since there was, was an idiot. It was a whole mess, and clearly this is, most of this had been fabricated by a poor lawyer and her sons. On April 14, 1924, Sabella and Crudel's death sentence was reversed after a two-hour court deliberation, and it was inferred that Michael had been the one to kill his father. Sabella's cellmates had taught her how to write a little English, and people tried to make her more attractive for the trial, because beauty is power in this case. She was released on bond on June 16, 1924, and her release was the first official document she'd ever signed. Crudell was released the next day. After six months, the murder charges against the two were dropped. Credell eventually left her, but she remarried and became a naturalized citizen, moving to Los Angeles in 1949 before passing away December 10, 1957 at age 77. Her freedom was actually secured by a team of Italian-American lawyers, including Helen Circe, the youngest woman to ever pass the bar in Illinois at only age 20, who fought for women to be on juries and would later defend many potential murderesses in court. Whoa, that was that was a lot of true crime. I could go on all day about the history and the particulars of how this musical was made, but let's cut to the basics on its origins. Maureen covered these sensationalist stories, but was only a journalist for eight months before leaving the Tribune. She said, I got so that I prayed for murders. Not that you ever have to pray long for murders in Chicago, but I prayed for good murders and I prayed that I would be sent to cover them. Finally, I had to get out of it. I had to. I was afraid my whole life would be influenced by murders, murders by and of other people. The book, He Had It Coming, attests that, if not for the musical Chicago, her name might have been lost to history. She began writing plays young, even selling at good reviews at age 11. She was top of her class in high school and studied many languages and playwriting at Hamilton College and Transylvania College in 1914, eventually getting a bachelor's from Butler University. She wrote A Brave Little Woman in 1926, the predecessor to the play Chicago. It would premiere under that name, or Play Ball, a three-act play that Maureen would keep the rights to all her life. The characters were modeled after these real murders that she'd covered and reported on, and even some of the reporters that she had actually worked with. It opened to good reviews, but it was eventually traveling the nation, becoming a sensation Marine kept writing and kept working on playwriting and film, but her greatest success would always be Chicago. Eventually, she retreated from Hollywood and stopped traveling the world. Maureen passed away August 10, 1969, to no obituary or large memorial. Close to her parents and cousins, but having no marriage or children, it remains, much remains a mystery about her life. Chicago the Musical opened in 1975, a knockout sensation after Maureen's death. An Oscar-winning film and Tony-winning musical, it has garnered $2 billion. It is the most money off of a piece of literature ever made by a Chicago Tribune writer. Probably the most successful, actually, of all time. We just looked at the trials of four women. Two who definitely committed murder and two who most likely did not. It's it's a lot to take in. Um... (laughs) But I think that there's a really important underlying theme in here, and it's the importance of press. It's the importance of writing and telling stories in an honest and accurate way. Now, most journalists will agree that there's no such thing as true objectivity. It's impossible not to let some of your feelings or personal interests not influence something you're covering. But this blatant sensationalism of hyping up these people and murders into being something just for readers to consume for a net profit, it's clearly had some horrible effects on some people, either letting murderers go free or almost h- hanging innocent women. There's a lot to get at from Chicago, and even though this story isn't as glittering and exciting as the musical might be, I think it's really amazing to look at the writer and how she drew so much inspiration from these very fascinating and... Very insane stories. I feel like we could just do, like, one episode each on each of these. We're not going to. I, I'm i too tired for that. But as we wrap up today, all I got to say is do your homework. Listen to some jazz for me. Just listen to some jazz. And I will see you next week for another woman who made her story. <laughs>